Word nerd. Wordsmith. Wordy. Wordless. Oxford Dictionary says a word is a single, distinct, meaningful element of speech or writing, used with others or sometimes alone. We say each one matters. No extra words is literature, minimalist style. And we're getting you right to the story. Blooming by Patty Somlo. The narrow aisle reeked of ammonia and old dust. My coat brushed the counter's edges. I could feel the merchandise leaning in my direction. No one noticed me slip a bottle of Be Delicious and a fake pearl necklace stapled on velveteen into my pocket from my hand. I glided one aisle over to the eyeshadow, blooming in tins, and palmed two into my bag. The lint-filled corners of my life began to blossom. I had only slipped one small lipstick tube into my pocket when a hand grabbed me right above the wrist. Curled black hairs nearly smothered lines on the wide fingers above each puffy knuckle. Come with me. The voice was deep and ripped like stepped-on glass. Those fat hands hauled me up a set of metal stairs into a dark room, crowded with paper and shelves. I emptied my pockets as I'd been ordered. Fistfuls of shredded Kleenex floated down. A wrinkled wrapper clutched a wad of pale gray chewed gum. The lipstick tube smacked the gray metal desk, mocking the silence of that dark place. I told the man the lipstick was mine. The lie slid from my lips as easily as the necklaces, perfume, and nail polish flirted with my heart. The man, whose dark face needed a shave, twirled the lipstick tube with his hairy fingers and accused me of lying. Instead of a flower, he saw a girl in a faded brown coat that needed replacing. I stared at my feet in a shiny pair of black suede slip-on shoes. The tear on the right side opened like an eye about ready to cry. My naked pinky toe considered our options before deciding that we'd best make a run for it. Hello there. Welcome to No Extra Words, the Flash Fiction Podcast. My name is Chris Baker-Dirsch. I'm your producer and editor. A show today about the way we see ourselves versus the way we're seen by the world. Sometimes very different, those two things. I actually really am enjoying the way this episode is playing out because in looking at these stories, I hadn't realized this until we started recording, but we're literally doing the long and short of what we do today. So you just heard Blooming by Patty Somlo, which clocks in at just under 300 words. It's not the shortest piece we've ever run here by far, but it is definitely on the short side. And then up next, after this interlude and drawing, you're going to hear nonsense syllables written and read for you by Don Corrigan. And that clocks in at just under 2,000 words, which is our limit, I think. Nonsense Syllables is the second longest story we've ever broadcast on this show. If you go back to episode 20, The Legend, Marina Mularz's story is a little bit longer than Don Corrigan's story, but that's about as long as we can do for logistical and recording purposes. So it's fun to put these two stories together that have a similar theme, but such different format because they are such different kinds of storytelling. Before we get to Dawn's reading, we are here to do another drawing. This is week three of four of our Contributor Appreciation Month sponsored by Chanillo.com. Last week, I talked a little bit about my experience with Chanillo as a reader. 
I wanted to point out that you can certainly sign up and work with Chinello.com as a writer. They are always taking applications for new writers. It is a super writer friendly platform. Doesn't cost a thing to apply for a series. You can apply for a series in any genre you want. Flash fiction, poetry, short stories. If you're writing a novel, you can put it up chapter by chapter. Whatever you're writing, they have a section for it. You decide how often you release episodes of your story. You do your own editing, you do your own cover, and you decide when you wanna start. And then you get 80% of what your subscribers are paying Chinello. So it's a pretty cool deal for writers. Thinking of applying for a series myself, and I hope you get in there too. C-H-A-N-N-I-L-L-O.com. Let them know. They're on Twitter. They're on social media. Let them know that you appreciate them sponsoring your favorite Flash Fiction podcast so they know their message is getting out there. Our winner is going to win a subscription to Chinillo as well as a couple other fun bonuses. And again, we have our very high-tech drawing tool. And it's my mixing bowl. What you're hearing is the sound of the names of our different contributors up until this point, including some that are on the calendar but not even recorded yet. We actually haven't given an award yet to someone whose story has already aired, which is a little weird. But everyone who's on the calendar as a contributor, unless they didn't want to be, is in my bowl. Yes, I am using reclaimed paper. And I'm reaching in and pulling out a name of a lucky person, and it is Nels Hansen. So Nels is actually another writer who is on our calendar, but whose story has not yet been recorded. He's going to be on episode 37. Nels, if you're listening, shoot me an email, noextrawords.gmail.com, or I'll be in touch with you and we'll talk about how to get you honored for Contributor Month. There is one week of Contributor Month left. So I've got this big bowl of names here. And the next time we record, we're going to pull out one more name, give away one more prize. So be listening for that. I'm going to get you to Don Corrigan reading nonsense syllables. Don't forget, writers, we are open for submissions for both poetry and prose. Check us out on our website. Hope to hear from you. We'll see you next week. Take care. Nonsense syllables. They couldn't sing. Specifically, the women couldn't sing at all. A few of the men could rumble along pleasantly enough. Once, in their youth, two of those men formed a doo-wop group with a couple of boys from the neighborhood, and they flung harmonies into the air from the corner of 48th and 10th, a very windy corner, for a few days like so. Sha-na-na-na, sha-na-na-na-na-na. Until the four of them were scattered apart by that very same wind. However, properly speaking, not a single one of that clan of Capuanos and Hogans, not even if we include their cousins, the Barrys and McDougals, the Montagues and Marianos, or even the more distantly related Raffenbergers, could carry a tune. It was their collective sorrow, then, that there was nothing they loved more than song. Their tastes weren't discriminating. For the most part, the love affair was fueled by whatever happened to be playing on the radio at the time. Though they owned a record player and would occasionally buy recordings of their favorite songs, which at that time were available on 45 RPM records the size of dessert plates, usually they were satisfied with the selections they received from random fate, which rode in on waves, 
at frequencies of 87.8 to 108 MHz. They'd huddle around the receiver each evening, one of the older boys in charge of tweaking fate by twisting the dial until he found a song they liked. Then a joyous cry would ring out, hands would fly into the air, the boy stationed at the radio would turn the volume to ten, and they would all sing along in a cheerful, croaking shout. Several generations of the family grew up spending their childhood evenings in this manner, and they became so accustomed to hearing music only through the distorted fuzz of a small radio receiver played at top volume through cheap speakers, plus the cacophony of their own voices, that later, when some of them married and had some money, and went with their spouses to buy new stereo systems, they were astonished to hear the pristine sound quality that modern technology had made available, the perfect articulation of each voice and instrument. They disliked it. Over time, they all became a little deaf. Through the magic of radio, then, members of the clan found a way to indulge their love of singing without driving each other mad with their terrible voices. And they might have continued in this course, happily ignorant of their own dysmelodia, were it not for the illuminating effects of education. Annette Montague was the first to make the discovery. It happened on her first day of school, an occasion for which Annette prepared with the devotion of a novitiate, lingering endlessly over her selection of notebooks, pencils, and book bag at the five and dime, then returning to them again and again in their place in the dresser at home, running her fingers over them, or simply staring down into the drawer in what seemed to her older sister Beth an absurd manner. Beth, who was about to enter the third grade, was already a weary veteran of the New York City public school system, and she feared Annette's enthusiasm would make her a target of ridicule. But on the morning of her first day, Annette rose and donned her best hand-me-down dress and secured her hair, like Beth's newly frizzled into a permanent wave by their mother Susie, with barrettes, and ate her waffle and shouldered her book bag and walked the ten blocks to school, enveloped in a cloud of radiance Beth couldn't puncture. As soon as they arrived, it became apparent that Beth's misgivings had been unwarranted, for Annette was immediately surrounded by a cluster of girls on the schoolyard, not to mention Benny Salino, who walked Annette to her desk after the first bell. Annette's infatuation didn't diminish with exposure. She loved the inkwells and the scent of the paper and the beautiful teachers, and when the teacher of her class, Miss Ryan, surely the most beautiful of all, announced that after school there would be glee club practice, Annette was filled with joy. Like everyone in her family, she loved to sing, and glee club represented a way for her both to sing and to enmesh herself more deeply with the life of the school, with which she wished to be as, as enmeshed as possible. So it was with great excitement that she presented herself to the choir director, Miss Warren, after class. Before their parents' divorce, Annette and Beth had occasionally sung with the church choir back in the old neighborhood, so Annette was familiar with the repertoire of this theoretically public, but for all practical purposes, Catholic school. Fold me into your fold, O sacred heart, Ave Maria, Amazing Grace, If I Had a Hammer, Mr. Sandman. Miss Warren asked the girls to divide themselves into three groups, sopranos, altos, and girls who weren't sure what they were. Annette joined the latter group, took one of the song sheets Miss Warren had passed around, and, at the teacher's cue, began singing with the others. They'd just reached the second long round of bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bums when Miss Warren stopped waving her baton. 
As the voices died down, she looked at Annette. Dear, what's your name? Annette Montague. Well, dear, while we don't want to discourage any girl who wishes to participate in Glee Club, I'm going to ask you to just mouth the words, okay? The other girls all turned to stare. Excuse me? While the other girls are singing, I want you to mouth the words along with them without actually singing them out loud. Don't sing out loud. Do you understand? Annette understood. Though she toughed it out for the rest of the afternoon, she never returned to Glee Club. And years later, when she was Annette Hogan, and friends of hers and Tommy's hauled their portable machine over for a night of karaoke, Annette contented herself with singing into her special wooden spoon, keeping her distance from the karaoke microphone. Tommy had painted the convex side of the spoon with white grid lines, transforming it into a trompe-l'oeil microphone for her. During the first age of karaoke, Annette's half-brother Eddie Capuano experienced a similar moment of revelation. It happened after Eddie had run away with the theater company at the age of 17. He joined them on their debut tour of Europe, a job he secured when several of the company's older, more experienced male leads were prevented from leaving the country because of the military draft. His underage placement with the troupe came after a childhood spent directing his half-sisters in a series of homespun theatrical productions with such a commanding spirit that they were left in little doubt regarding his aptitude for a career as a director or some other type of dictator. Upon his return from Europe, Eddie eschewed formal education in favor of self-improvement. He took lessons in speech and diction, and made careful note of the dress and manners of the class to which his charm, talent, and underage European tour had gained him access. Under the sway of the familial devotion to song, and to round out his abilities as a performer, he also took singing lessons. He persevered in these lessons for ten years, appearing faithfully each week at the appointed hour at the front door of Ben O'Brien, a former boy soprano who retained a beautifully operatic tenor voice into adulthood. Outside of their roles of teacher and student, Eddie and Ben were friends, and over the course of ten years they'd survived riots and demonstrations and bad love affairs and muggings and mediocre productions and outrageous fashion statements, not to mention the singing lessons themselves. At the close of what would turn out to be the final lesson, Ben went into his tiny kitchen to fix coffee for them. When he re-entered his study, he saw that Eddie was staring at the wall in a particularly fierce way he had. Clearly he hadn't paid a whit of attention to the story Ben was telling. Ben was about to ask what was wrong when Eddie said, I can't sing. Since it wasn't a question, Ben didn't reply. But Eddie persisted. I can't sing at all, Miss Pa. Well, no but you have many other fine qualities. Why didn't you tell me, Eddie demanded. Ben shrugged. It was a shrug that said, the answer is obvious. It said, you needed to find this out for yourself. It said, Shakan Asangu. Eddie didn't ask again. Though Eddie's sisters followed his theater career avidly, Annette had never met Ben, nor heard him sing, until the day Eddie died. This was after the trip to the hospital, and after, at Eddie's insistence, the trip home, after the arrangement of elaborate schedules for family and friends and home health care aides, after the vitamin injections and the bee sting therapy, and the trip to Italy for the hypothermia treatment, and long after the death of Eddie's friend, Greg. A kind of resigned calm had descended upon Eddie's studio apartment, where Annette, 
Beth and Ben clustered around his bedside in an exhausted daze. It was then that Annette, who'd often heard Eddie praise the miracle that was Ben's voice, shyly asked if he wouldn't sing something for them. Eddie, meanwhile, found himself in a place without mirrors, windows, or doors. It was full of heat and light, so he felt a little like a fly trapped between a screen and a window pane. Fortunately, he'd always loved basking in the sun, so he found the sensation pleasant rather than claustrophobic. However, he couldn't shake the feeling that he was supposed to do something. He decided to have a look around. As he walked, he noticed that the sense of light and heat remained constant no matter where he went, though his sense of urgency didn't abate. One ought to be provided with a set of instructions, he sniffed, or at least a map. Right at that moment, by Eddie's bedside, Ben began to sing. The song he chose was a number from his most recent show, which Eddie had directed. The lyrics consisted entirely of nonsense syllables. La la, Ben sang, luli. Eddie could hear the song faintly, as though through an apartment wall. He knew that when Ben began to sing, the beauty of the song made his sisters burst into tears, but he recognized them as the tears of those who've done everything they should, which are different from the tears of those who've left something out, and not at all like the tears, the terrible tears, of those who've done a thing or two too many. As he wandered, he noticed that there were a lot of fountains. Some were familiar. There was the fountain from Rockefeller Plaza, there the one from the Metropolitan Museum, and there the famous fountain from the Plaza San Marco, which Eddie had seen in person when he was 17. As he drew closer, however, he realized that this was a sort of idealized version of the St. Mark's Fountain, more luminous than the one he'd seen in Italy, and without its marks of age or decay. Just then Ben reached the crescendo of his song. As his voice rose, an opening appeared, where there had been no opening before. It was a little like seeing a window blind that's been pulled too hard shoot up toward the ceiling, revealing a pane full of night. There you are, Eddie said. It's about time. And he passed through the opening and out of the light. Thanks for listening to the No Extra Words podcast. For more information on today's stories and contributors, or to learn how to submit your own work, please visit us at noextrawords.wordpress.com. The best support you can give the show is to recommend us to your family and friends. See you next time.